Well, we have been within this series, which um, I've titled A Firm Foundation, after the words of that parable, parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, with the builder who builds his house on the rock. And we are attempting to rediscover the words spoken by Jesus Christ with the hopes that that will uh, bring its way into the church, that it might draw us closer to God, and as we draw closer to God, may it draw us in closer to ourselves. Last week, I, I, I mentioned the idea that the word Christian, within our culture at least, has become vague. It, it, it's grown to mean just about everything and nothing all at the same time. And part of this, I imagine, is due to the fact that the Bible never actually gives us a definition of the word Christian. In fact, it's used only three times within our New Testament, and it's never used by individuals within the church. It's always used by outsiders who are looking in, almost with a sort of derogatory intent. Like, look at those Christians. But what is interesting to me is the words that the people of the first century church actually did use to describe themselves. Within the book of Acts, Christians are referred to multiple times as, quote, followers of the way. Acts chapter 9, the man Saul was sent uh, to Damascus in order to find followers of the way and take them in as prisoners. And on this trip, we know Saul had an encounter, an experience with the risen Christ that caused him to repent in the most literal sense of the word. And later in Acts 24, this same man, now known to us as the Apostle Paul, stood on trial for his faith before Felix the governor. And there in Acts 24, this is what Paul said. I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. Chapter 18 of Acts, a man named Apollos came through Ephesus after being instructed in the way of the Lord. They were told that he taught uh, about Jesus accurately, but he only knew of the baptism of John. This meant that uh, Apollos knew nothing about uh, that Jesus was the fulfillment of what John preached. Uh, he, he did not he did not fully grasp the implications of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, nor did he understand uh, the power of the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. And so we see there in uh, Acts 18, Apollos was teaching an incomplete gospel within the synagogues. And therefore, two people, Priscilla and Aquila, two prominent leaders within the early church, invited Apollos into their homes in order to explain the way of God more fully. Elsewhere, in the early Christianity was also referred to as the way. We have Second Peter, the apostle, refers to Christianity as the way of truth. The author of Hebrews also refers to Jesus as, quote, the way, the way in which we are able to draw near to the presence of God. See, knowing this, about what the early church called themselves highlights something unique within the prayer of the psalmist that we read just a minute ago. Lead me in the way everlasting. 
When we read this in light of what we learn in the New Testament, or rather, who we learn about in the New Testament, this prayer takes on a different meaning for us. My dad grew up about an hour south of Detroit, Michigan, and when he was a teenager, he and his friend took a drive up to the old Tiger Stadium to catch a baseball game. They had a great time, and after the game, it was time for them to go home, but as as they were trying to find the interstate, they got lost. And they're driving around. My dad is driving with his buddy in the seat next to him. They're driving around, getting more and more lost, trying to find the interstate, trying to find the way home. And finally, my dad's friend looks over to him and he says, I thought you said you knew the way. <laughs> my dad looked back at him and he said, I said I knew how to get there. I never said I knew the way home. We think of the way as sort of this turn-by-turn knowledge of how we're going to get where we're going, right? Knowing the way means knowing uh, which turns we have to make, uh, which lane we have to be in, and all of that. And if we do all of this, then we will surely get where we are going, right? I think this is what the psalmist meant when he wrote his prayer in Psalm chapter 139. Show me the steps that I need to take, which is going to bring me to everlasting life with you, God. But that's not the narrative of what God does through Scripture, is it? The way of Scripture is not a turn-by-turn navigation in order to reach the destination of God The way in Scripture is a single person, Jesus Christ. In John 14, chapter 6, presumably the uh, underlying reason that the early church called themselves followers of the way, this is what Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I know the way to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. I think humanity as a whole tends to view life like this, right? Uh, We are somewhere down here on earth. And God is somewhere up there in heaven. And all around us, we have all of these broken bits and pieces, which if only we had the right instruction manual... We could bring all these broken parts together and we could build ourselves a ladder that we can then use to climb our way up to heaven, up to God. Even in Christianity, I think we have a tendency to do this, don't we? The reality of Scripture is that this could not be further from the truth. Because the reality as it's told in Scripture looks something more like this. God created every single part of this world so that we could have communion with him. And, but somewhere along the way, we humans began to doubt God's goodness. We began to trust ourselves above what God had spoken. And as a result, humanity fell. Now lying here on earth, separated from our God, we're desperately trying to build our own ladders 
in order to climb up and reach God. But very quickly, we come to learn that even our best ladders are far too short to reach all the way up to God. And even if we did have a ladder that could reach high enough, we are not even strong enough to climb up the first rung. And so, in his great compassion, God sees our weakness. He decides to do the one thing that could possibly restore that communion which we had broken. God himself jumps down from heaven and comes down to where we are. He destroys all of our ladders, saying these aren't going to be necessary. And little by little, he begins to take, take us up by the hand and help us to stand up. And God begins raising every single part of this broken world until it is once again restored to the home that it was always originally intended to be. It's as the author C.S. Lewis wrote, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down to the very roots and seedbed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. Lead me in the way everlasting. In light of Jesus Christ, we learn that the prayer of the psalmist is not a prayer for the right combination of steps. And it's not a prayer for the instruction manual to build the ladder. It's a prayer for the reminder of all that God has done. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus Christ is the way. The only way to salvation, to life, to true human flourishing. Lead me in the way everlasting. Why are we spending so much time on this this morning? Well, the psalmist here in Psalm 139 highlights the key in order for us to understand the next part of the Sermon on the Mount that we are going to look at today. And that's this. The way everlasting, Jesus Christ, the way everlasting is the key overcoming our anxious thoughts. The psalmist prays, lead me in the way everlasting, implicitly praying, God, lead me away from all of these anxious thoughts and lead me away from all of my offensive ways. Give me Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says these words, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and not the body more than clothes? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, Of course life is more than food, right? But what's the point? Should we stop eating food? Is that what Jesus wants us to do? No, I don't think that's what Jesus wants us to do. 
seems to me that the point that Jesus is trying to make is to uncover where we are placing our focus. In your Bible there, in Matthew chapter 6, you're probably going to have a little bit of a section break there with a, a heading in bold, maybe something that reads uh, something like, do not worry, right? That's what it says in my Bible, at least. Well, the truth is that these headings are not original to the text. They are placed in there by the translators of the Bible in order to help us you know, locate parts of Scripture, find things that we're looking for. And so they can be helpful, but sometimes these headings aren't really as helpful as I think they're intended to be. And in my opinion, this is one of those cases. (laughs) I don't think that do not worry is a very helpful heading for this section. In fact, I don't even think the section break is in the right place. I'd place that section break right before verse 24. Because you see, this passage is not really about anxiety or worry. It's about focus. It's about where we are placing our priorities. What are we truly seeking after? Jesus says in verse 24, immediately before the section break here, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, your relentless pursuit of the one will always get in the way of your pursuit of the other. Where you put your focus will affect the end result, whether you want it to or not. <laughs> it's about where, where you put your focus. In the year 1978, the San Francisco 49ers were one of the worst teams in all of football. That year, they had a record of just two wins and 14 losses. It was clear after that season that they needed a change, and so the following year, 1979, the 49ers hired the now-famous Bill Walsh to be their new head coach. And despite inheriting this team that was really not doing well at all, Walsh was able to implement his unique philosophy of leadership in order to turn this team around completely. In just three years, uh, just three years after their 2-14 and 14 season, Walsh was able to lead the 49ers to their first ever Super Bowl victory with a 26-21 win over none other than the Cincinnati Bengals. Over the course of his 10 seasons with, as head coach of the 49ers, Walsh led the 49ers to six NFC Western Division championships with three NFC titles, followed by three Super Bowl victories. <laughs> this, all this made the San Francisco 49ers, without a doubt, the NFL team of the 1980s. Years later, Bill Walsh wrote about his philosophy of leadership, the one which he was able to use to turn around this failure of a team into one of the best teams of the game. And Walsh wrote this. Even when you have an organization brimming with talent, victory is not always under your control. There is no guarantee, no ultimate formula for success. It all comes down 
to intelligently and relentlessly seeking solutions that will increase your chance of prevailing. When you do that, he said, the score will take care of itself. Score will take care of itself. See, the point that Walsh is making is that in football, you're not going to win games by keeping your eyes glued on the scoreboard the whole game, right? If an offensive lineman is doing nothing but watching the scoreboard, then he's going to leave the quarterback wide open, right? In order for the team to have a chance at being successful in winning the game, that offensive lineman has to almost forget about what the score is doing. He has to put all of his energy, all of his focus into blocking the guy right in front of him and protecting that quarterback. You win games by focusing on how well you're playing the game, right? And this is true in other sports too, right? The 100-meter the dash. You're not supposed to be looking at the guys next to you in the lanes uh, around you. You're not supposed to worry about what they're doing. You're supposed to keep your eyes focused fully on the finish line, straight ahead, and putting every part of your energy into running the race as hard and as fast as you possibly can. That is the only way to give yourself a chance at success. See, when you're focused on all the right things, the score will take care of itself. The idea here is when you're focusing on things which are really important, you can pretty much forget about the scoreboard or the guy running next to you. I think that Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6 is telling us something similar. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will wear. In other words, don't spend your time with your eyes glued on the scoreboard of life. Instead, put all of your energy into focusing on what truly matters. And all of these things are going to be taken care of for you. You see, the problem here is not that these things aren't important. I think it's important for us to eat, right? I think it's important for us to get dressed every morning. (laughs) But the problem is that we spend all of our time and all of our energy in pursuit of these things at the expense of what truly matters. Our pursuit of the kingdom of God. Because as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. But Jesus shows us the better way, doesn't he? Matthew 6, chapter chapter 6, verse 33, one of my all-time favorite verses of scripture. Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Boy, isn't that the truth. (laughs) But don't you see, church, Jesus here is not condemning our anxiety. Jesus is showing us a better way to turn our focus to the way. To the kingdom of God. And so church, I want to ask you this morning, where is your focus? Are you worried about the future? Are you anxious about things to come? Or are you focused here and now 
fully in pursuit of the kingdom of God. The psalmist prayed, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. Turn my heart away from these anxious thoughts. Cleanse my heart of everything that is not from you, God, and lead me down the path of Christ. Give me the strength to seek your kingdom above all else and let the score take care of itself. Church, do not worry about what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about what the stock market is doing. Don't worry about which candidate is in office. In all things, seek first the kingdom of God, not second. Not third, not just when it's convenient, but at all times and in all places. Seek God's will and God's righteousness. And he will see to it that everything else is taken care of for you. This is the promise that our God gives through the gift of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so church... Fix your eyes on the way everlasting. Don't worry, for it has all already been accomplished. Heavenly Father, you search our hearts and you know us. You know all of our anxious thoughts. You know all of our worries. And God, on the authority of your word, you have a solution to them all. And so, God, we trust these anxious thoughts into your loving hands now. Transform these worried thoughts into a confident and steadfast pursuit of your holy kingdom. Help us now, Lord, to set our focus on your holy kingdom and your righteousness above everything else. God, help us to put you first. Because that will be our only true chance of any success. Lead us in the way everlasting by the help of your Holy Spirit. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son. Amen. Amen.